Hello, and welcome to the Formal Review. Today, we'll be having a very special episode looking at three different movies. Now sit back, relax, grab your drinks, and let's talk about these movies. What's up, y'all, and welcome back to the Formal Review. This is Season 4, Episode 30, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. So welcome to the second out in award season, and there's still a lot of movies to be seen. So in case you missed the last episode, every year I watch the, all the films that have been nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and then all the acting categories, and then sometimes I have time to watch the screenplay movies if there's only one or two that are in addition to this list that I haven't seen. Now, all the films have been nominated, and there's a long list of films that I haven't seen yet. There's, since there's only about a month since the nominations go out to the award ceremony, there's going to be an increased amount of films in each episode from one to three. So in the last episode, I covered King Richard, Drive My Car, and Don't Look Up. Now in this episode, I will be going into Belfast, Licorice Pizza, and Coda. So stay tuned. Now before I get into anything, I do want to preface this episode with a slight spoiler warning. As analyses go, I will do my best to keep the analysis fairly vague so not to ruin the movie for you. However, I do suggest go see these films before you have to hear what I have to say about it if you fully understand everything. But if you don't care about that, just keep listening. Also, I know I talk about this at the end, but the data shows that most people don't listen to that part. So I want to talk about it here and reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite subscription services. I do read those because I do want to grow because these episodes are really for all you listeners out there and i want to keep this entertaining so what do you want to hear do you want to hear games do you want to hear more of the 4k stuff do you want to hear me talk about a certain movie if you want to come on and talk to me about something for you want to debate i'm always open to do stuff like that so you can always reach out to me on social media i always want to grow and improve and just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved so if there's something that you want me to improve on let me know and i will grow as such I also want to say with these episodes, this is going to be a coming of age themed episode and all of these films are coming of age films and looking at that type of film genre. Now these films are usually dealing with teenagers and they focus on the psychological and moral growth of the tradition of a protagonist from youth to adulthood or something close to them. So personal growth and change is the very important characteristic of this film genre, which also more relies on dialogue and emotional responses rather than action films. So going into this, if you're not into these types of movies and you want an action film, I wouldn't suggest you watch these films. However, having said that, these films, all three, are relatively decent, and frankly, I would suggest you go see them. However, if you don't want to, you can still listen to what I have to say about them, so if you wanted to pick and choose, you can definitely pick the one that sounds the most interesting to you. Also, if you want to skip ahead to not hear all of the analysis on each of these films, you can skip ahead to around the four and a half minute mark if you want to hear the analysis of Belfast, or around the 20 minute mark to hear the analysis on Liquor's Peace or around the 35 and a half minute mark to hear the analysis on Coda. Anyway, so let's get back to the movies at hand. So sit back, relax, grab your drinks, and let's talk about these movies.
Belfast is a coming-of-age drama film written and directed by Kenneth Branagh. It stars Kytronio Balfe, Judi Dench, Jamie Doran, Sirian Hines, Colin Morgan, and newcomer Jude Hill. Now this film is what Branagh has described as his most personal film and it follows this young boy's childhood in Belfast, Northern Ireland at the beginning of the Troubles in 1969. Now this film has been said to be semi-autobiographical to Kenneth Branagh. Now in Belfast, Buddy played by Hill is an average kid who's living with his loving family and enjoys playing with his friends and cousins. Now, Branagh himself was born at the end of 1960 in Belfast, and he was the son of working-class Protestant parents who were a plumber and a joiner who ran a company that specialized in fitting partitions and suspended ceiling. Then at the age of nine, he moved with his family to Reading, Berkshire, England to escape the Troubles. Now, for those who do not know, the Troubles were this ethno-nationalist conflict in Northern Ireland that lasted about 30 years. It began in the late 1960s and it is usually thought to have ended around the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Now it's primarily due to politics but there's also the ethnic side of things. The sides were essentially determined as the Protestant versus Catholic but it had nothing really to do with religion. In a nutshell the conflict was over the status of Northern Ireland where Protestants wanted Northern Ireland to remain within the UK and Catholics wanted Northern Ireland to leave the UK and become a United Ireland. Now for those who did not have some sort of intense event to happen on in early life, the age of 9 and 10 can be very impactful for a child that can really stick with someone for many, many years. And this shows to be true with Brano's direction and his writing on the film. He shows his traumatic events through the eyes of a child that really gives more emotion and lends weight to the events in Buddy's life in ways that most likely would not have been the case if Brana had not really used his own history and was just kind of writing out his imagination. Now, one could even say that this film is Brano's equivalent to Alfonso Cuaron's Roma from a few years ago. Even stylistically, the film draws parallels to Roma with his black and white aesthetic. Now, one of the reasons that Cuaron used black and white was because most of that film was coming directly from the filmmaker's memory and it basically recalls a time in the past and that is the same here for Brana. The aesthetic conveys this memory even with the use of update technology that really combines clarity but also recollection. However, Belfast does have some color which is used to show Belfast as it is in the present and the films that Buddy's family watches in theaters. Now the contrast of these scenes show the differences between memory and the now. It even shows how the film is seen through Buddy's eyes. The color, even with the films and TV shows shown in the film, represents things that they are today and the films such as JJ Bang Bang haven't changed since Buddy's childhood and it could also represent an escape from Buddy's world where he could go into that is both separate both symbolically but also realistically and this film shows how Buddy's parents decide to leave their home behind for a better and safer life in England they want their family to have a better life that is separate from the conflict that affects their daily lives this film doesn't represent a man looking back at his past with hostility but more of an appreciation for the way that it shaped him. This message can really be easily applied to almost everyone while it's also touching on themes of fear of change, wanting a better life for your family, and many people in the world often leave behind in search of a more stable life. And this is reasoning behind all this is also why a lot of people immigrate to the United States. There are people out there who think that the United States needs to step up deportation, impose stricter limits on refugees, asylum seekers, and legal immigrants. And there are people who say that our government is 
he's able to quote keep track of illegal immigrants who cross the border end quote and they're possibly coming over secretly overnight on planes and buses and some of them have covid some of them have drug runs and they're potentially criminals they could be terrorists all of these options of what they could be but when you break it down and actually look at why are these people coming to the united states it really shows that these are just human beings in general it is because the united states ranks as one of the most desirable countries to immigrate to because of the better living conditions provided the country has an active economy with a wide array of work opportunities for almost everyone wages are higher here than in most countries with a relatively low cost of living now the biden administration have blamed root causes such as poverty corruption and violence in these countries and has said that they're going to be pledging a lot of taxpayer money to try to combat these root causes now when interviewed the migrants themselves have been saying that the reasons why they're leaving their respective countries in is in hope of building a better future for themselves and their families some say that they've been threatened or extorted by criminal gangs operating hometown many are traveling with children whom they do not want to go into gang life others are hoping to get jobs abroad which pay enough for them to send money to relatives who have stayed behind and many say that their dream to reach the US is it they just want to come to the United States some of them have relatives that are already here that they hope to join others have keep it as their destination because they think that they would get higher salaries here than in their home country now immigration from your home is not an easy decision to make as it is and even when you get somewhere else it's still not easy many people wonder why do immigrants do not just come to the United States legally or simply apply for citizenship while living here without authorization and these suggestions miss the point and the same idea goes toward anyone who thinks that you can just come here and wait in a line because for some there's no line available for undocumented immigrants and even the regular lines are largely not even available to prospective immigrants who end up living due to entering the country through authorized channels even though more than 80 percent of undocumented immigrants have lived in the united states for over 10 years many could live out the rest of their lives without any opportunity to become legal residents of this country and this is because immigration to the united states on a temporary or permanent basis is basically done through three different routes either employment family reunification or humanitarian protection each of these legal avenues is highly regulated and subject to huge amount of limitations and eligibility requirements. As a result, most undocumented immigrants do not have the necessary family or employment relationships and often cannot access humanitarian protection such as refugee or asylum status. This means that no matter how long they have been in the United States, most undocumented immigrants have no way of achieving legal status. And even those who pay taxes, work hard, contribute to their communities and society, don't have a way to get in line unless Congress creates a new pathway to legal status. Now, unauthorized, undocumented immigrants who enter the United States without being legally admitted and inspected are generally not eligible to obtain green cards while still inside the country. Even if there is a visa available, they're barred from adjusting their status and getting a green card without first leaving the country because of how they entered the United States. And so, even if they're fleeing a really problematic area and they get to the United States, they have to go back. And then there's no guarantee that they would get the status anyway. 
because leaving the country to obtain a visa can have significant negative consequences. Anyone who's been out of status for more than 180 days but less than one year is barred from being readmitted or re-entering the United States for three years. While anyone who has been out of status for more than one year is then barred for 10. So it's such a huge endeavor to quote unquote wait in line because you honestly don't know with some of these countries that they even have that opportunity to do that. Even though there are some waivers to these barrings, they're very difficult to obtain. So that means when a visa is actually available, undocumented immigrants must risk spending up to 10 years away from their families in the United States before being allowed to re-enter the country. Now, most people who legally immigrate to the United States come through family-based visas. Now, qualified family members in the United States can seek permission to bring in certain eligible foreign family members. And in all cases, the petitioning family in the United States must demonstrate an income level above the poverty line and must commit to support the family members they are seeking to bring to the United States. Now, the foreign-born persons wishing to immigrate must also have met eligibility requirements. And this means that a family-based visa is unavailable to any undocumented immigrant who doesn't have a qualified relative or who isn't able to meet those eligibility requirements. To come to the United States for employment purposes, either temporary or permanently, the employer must have the job already lined up and they are willing to commit to being a sponsor. This means that they also must meet certain employment qualifications such as education and or professional experience. And in this situation, there are a limited number of temporary visas for highly skilled or internationally recognized workers, and then even less temporary seasonal visits for agricultural workers and certain other quote-unquote less skilled workers. And this is because there has to be a reason why this visa should go to this person outside over somebody who is in the United States. So going through that whole process is an extremely lengthy endeavor. So very few undocumented immigrants are eligible for these visas, and even for the ones that do, the competition for them is absolutely fierce. So unless you're one of the lucky few, these visas are fairly unavailable to undocumented immigrants, regardless of the skill that you have and desire to work there legally. Now, each year, the United States sets a numerical limit on how many refugees will be admitted to the United States for humanitarian reasons. And to be admitted as refugees, you must be screened by multiple international and U.S. agencies to demonstrate a, quote, well-founded fear of prosecution based on race, religion, membership of a so particular social group, political opinion, or national origin. Now, silent seekers are already in the United States who fear returning to their home countries and must prove they meet the definition of a refugee. Now, you don't qualify for it just because of poverty or difficult economic conditions in their home country. And most undocumented immigrants are ineligible for asylum because the law generally requires that somebody files for asylum within one year of entering the United States. So when undocumented immigrants do fall under one of these three routes, even when that happens, many are still not able to take advantage of that process for many years. And the demand from both family members and workers who want to immigrate to the United States is typically higher than the number of slots available each year. Additionally, there is a maximum number of employment-based and family-sponsored preference visas that can be issued to citizens of any one country each year. The number of permanent immigrants from a single country cannot exceed 7% of the total number 
number of people immigrating to the United States in a single fiscal year. So as such, you get this significant backlog for many family members and many people hoping to enter the United States, even legally, with some immigrants from certain countries waiting for decades. Moreover, for the past two years, the federal government has not even come close to meeting the annual caps for either employment-based or family preference visas due just to the slow processing of everything. And that is not even including the pandemic that we're in. So undocumented immigrants who want to become citizens of the United States cannot just quote, get in line. Although there are these lines, many aspiring lawful permanent residents aren't even able to get into them. So even if you meet the formal requirements to immigrate, the wait is very, very long, especially if there's already a lengthy backlog of applications, not only from your country, but also the many other countries that other people who are trying to immigrate to this, to this country. Now, some people have the issue with the amount of people coming to this country when it comes to job occupation or we have too many people. However, research shows that it is beneficial to both the receiving and sending country. It, on average, has a positive economic effects on the native population, and studies show that the elimination of barriers to migration would have profound effects on world GDP, with the estimates gaining ranging between 67 and 147 percent for the scenarios in which 37 to 53 percent of the developing countries' workers migrate to the developed countries. In fact, development economists argue that reducing barriers to labor mobility between developing countries and developed countries would be the most efficient tool for poverty reduction. And if a country has a positive net immigration, it can soften the democratic dilemma that a country has. Research also shows that the immigration to the United States has no impact on crime rate. So if you're actually worried about it, research show that you shouldn't be. So any concerns that people have for immigration is really debunked at this point. Both parties benefit from it and it does not significantly bring any more criminals into the country than ones that were already here. And this is why the system, though not perfect by any means, is set up currently and why films showing the immigrating family story are important and it's even more important to see these films that see the process through the eyes of children because they are affected in ways that they may not be able to verbalize and on top of all that films like Belfast show how somebody's identity can be established so early on in their lives and remain true to this day in their heart and Belfast shows that even though a child may not fully understand everything that's going on around him it is or was something that affected Buddy's or Brana's life. And towards the finale, there's this harrowing effect for the viewer when they see the family dealing with this decision. One can easily see their sadness, but also their hope for the future, which can not only be applied to just the people of Belfast as a whole, but also just immigrants as well. Unfortunately though, <laughs> to get to this point, the film is quite boring. The film has very little happening in it outside of a relatively normal wife and really none of it was particularly unexpected. Now this may be a spoiler here but the story is that the family gets caught up in the troubles in Northern Ireland and afterwards spend most of the rest of the movie agonizing about it and then they decide to leave their hometown. That's really it. Another reason that it's boring is that the characters aren't that interesting because they're just normal. The main problem in this film is the troubles but one doesn't really see that much about it. The actors playing the characters are all fairly good but no one's really that outstanding. The characters honestly themselves feel very blandly written. Now there was one emotional moment where the grandfather dies, but that's really it. The antagonists of this film do not really do much other than hang around and issue threats. The film, when it was over, did not feel like 
one that I personally would revisit. It's not a snooze fest by any means, but there wasn't much to grab onto for a second viewing. The film may succeed with its message, its direction, the acting, the ending, but really struggles with its details and really making it, again, worth a second viewing. And that there really wasn't that many details going in on it. It was a pretty cut and dry story that did nothing more than just tell it. So at the end of the day, it's not a waste of time and it's worth a watch to see a country you haven't seen before or a conflict you didn't know about. However, not really worth a second reviewing, but I would say a four out of five. Now let's get on to the next one. Licorice Pizza is a coming-of-age comedy drama film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. This stars Alana Haim, Cooper Hoffman in their film debuts alongside an ensemble cast that includes Sean Penn, Tom Waits, Bradley Cooper, and Benny Safdie. Now, this film, similarly to Belfast, is a true story that's based on the combination of Anderson's hometown memories and also real-life accounts of his friend Gary Goatsma. And it's about this teenage student who becomes flirtatious with an older girl who is taking the class pictures. The former is Gary Valentine, played by Hoffman, and the latter is Alana Kane, played by Haim. Now this becomes a relationship in Los Angeles of the 1970s as they attempt to become actors and work on election campaigns while also trying to get their business to flourish. Their lives then get affected by the cultural and social realities of LA of the time. Now the real life Gary Goetzma co-founded a film and production company called Playtone with Tom Hanks. However, the character of Alana is believed to be fictional. Now the the film also has a handful of older Hollywood celebrities as characters in this film. Bradley Cooper's John Peters is the producer of films such as Ali and A Star Is Born. Sean Penn's Jack Holden is supposed to be represented by the Academy Award winning actor William Holden. And Benny Safdie's Joe Watch is based on LA based politician. Now along with them, John C. Riley appears as Fred Gwine and Christine Ebersole is seen as Lucille Doolittle who's also based on Emmy winner Lucille Ball. Now, the title of the film is based on this record chain store in Southern California called Liquor's Pizza. Though neither the store or that title really have any connection to the actual story of this film. It seemingly is just two words that go together that try to capture the feel of the 1970s. And honestly, in fact, it does that well. The film is able to make the viewer feel that they're right within the 1970s from its fictional points to its real events such as the Yom Kippur War which created the gas crisis in the USA affecting both obviously Gary and Alana's waterbed company. It's honestly wild that even the waterbed business was affected because of the gas crisis. And this film really just puts these young people or teenagers because they really never feel older than that at the mercy of this Arab-Israeli war that really has nothing to do with them specifically. Now the other realistic view of this film is the treatment of Japanese people that exist existed for many years. One that even Anderson himself has seen and in his words it was necessary to include these ugly portions of his memory as it relates to race and class even though he does not agree with it. Anderson basically defends his choice by saying that quote, it would not be a mistake to tell a period film through the eyes of 2021. You cannot have a crystal ball, you have to be honest to that time, end quote. Now while he is right in a sense that the world used to be like that and bad times should be shown. In his film, it's used mostly for a joke about a fairly 
racist character. And this is because the character essentially gives people permission to laugh at a stereotype rather than his stupidity. It's a bit that keeps on coming up in the film multiple times, and if it was only used to display the time, this type of sequence didn't really have to repeat itself multiple times. It's there for a cheap laugh in a scene that really mocks Japanese accents. Now, these scenes involve this side character named Jerry Frick, who is the real-life owner of this restaurant called Mikado, which is the first Japanese restaurant in the San Fernando Valley. Now, he's first introduced here with his wife, Miyoko, played by Yumi Mizui, with Jerry's publicist. Now, after the publicist reads a bit from the restaurant's marketing, Jerry turns to Miyoko and asks for her opinion in the very, in the stereotypical Japanese accent. And Miyoko responds sternly in Japanese, which is not subtitled. So if you don't understand Japanese, you're not going to understand what she says. So in this moment, I'm going to take the point to translate this little bit. One, this joke isn't even that funny because if you don't know Japanese, you don't even know her response. You're not laughing at the situation. You're laughing at the fact that this guy doesn't know Japanese. But in this moment, she says, which translates to, never mind the waitress, it is a restaurant, food, you're not writing about food. And what's the point of this scene? If you're going to basically try to show how bad this was and kind of make this a more representation of the time, then subtitle it. Because then somebody who maybe laugh at that, maybe this isn't a serious thing, maybe this person only can speak Japanese and no English. Maybe that's the situation. But that's not the situation because they don't subtitle it. And again, this is just used from a joke because later on, Jerry appears again when Alana and Gary go to the restaurant to ask about placing their ads for their water better business on the restaurant's tables. Now, we're no longer with Miyoko and it's a new wife, but that's not the point here. And he asks her her opinion about the business proposition. And then again, this new wife, Kimiko, played by Megumi Anjo, responds again in a unsubtitled Japanese. And then Alana asks for a translation to Jerry, to which Jerry shrugs off, it's hard to tell, I don't speak Japanese. So then what is the point of, it's not to be a scene to show that this guy's a bumbling idiot because maybe if he didn't speak Japanese maybe if we knew what he said and then he understood something different every time that would make sense and that's the joke then you're laughing at his stupidity but in this sense where no one knows because it's not subtitled unless you know Japanese what this person is saying and I'm gonna translate it and it's, we cannot have such a lousy thing at our restaurant. So these sentiments that these two women are saying make sense within it. But the unless you know Japanese, the audience doesn't know that. And it's really used to be joking at this person who's making fun of this accent because you don't know what this person is saying. So if you put in the subtitles, maybe these scenes would have a little bit less problematic aspects to it. Because this hard to tell, I don't speak Japanese line is clearly intended to be a punchline. And this is a payoff that was sketched by an earlier on scene. Now, some may say that it's not clear who the butt of the joke is, but in the first scene, the first wife asks him, Wakaru? Which essentially means, do you understand? In this situation, the answer would have been no, because he doesn't speak Japanese. So the wives aren't really in on the joke. And then it's still an issue, regardless of whether the audience is laughing with or at Jerry, because it's identical to the tone and that is used to mock and demean mean the Japanese. If one defends these scenes as to be quote, tell it like it was, social critique, then why was that punchline needed? Now, regardless of whether one finds these scenes offensive, they really serve as 
the latest evidence that the portrayal of anti-Asian expression really remains a creative device for American filmmakers. I mean, even you go back to two years ago with Quentin Tarantino's use of Bruce Lee as the foil for Brad Pitt's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, Tarantino has himself really continued to double down on the characterization of the real-life Asian American icon and has said that he was just deploying a narrative license that Lee was an egomaniac. And then with Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, the majority of the film, again, takes place in Japan, but again, the Japanese language isn't translated very much and it's used again as a humorous aspect. And then also in 2019, Guy Ritchie's gangster comedy, The Gentleman, had racist barbs at his Asian antagonist, repeatedly referred to as Chinaman, and basically puts the yellow peril executed as Ritchie's signature shock dialogue and really true to the movie's criminal low-life characters. Now, these four films have really incorporated these Asian signifiers to serve many different means. But what they really have in common is that they're not really interested in, in exploring the characters themselves, but just really showing the blindness of real-world context to the audience receiving these stories. Now, looking at this film specifically, not much has been said about Frick's real life-wise. His first Yoko sued him for a divorce in 1968, so then he started dating his second wife, Hiroko, who was also married at the time. They then were wed in 1971, and then separated a decade later, and then they spent the next several years tied up in court disputes over property. And now, even Anderson's real-life Japanese mother-in-law would have been more interesting to be shown here. Her name is Kimiko Kasai, and she's a retired jazz singer who has been performing in Tokyo clubs at the age of age 16. She then moved to the United States in 1978 and has recorded with many jazz legends such as Herbie Hancock, Gil Evans, and Paulinho da Costa, and after 30 years, she stopped performing. Now, these stories could have been told separately, but in this film, they're used as a gag, and this really demonstrates the problematic industry that Hollywood is. Last August, a study of Asian American representation in the entertainment industry found that audiences are asked to laugh at nearly half of Asian and Pacific Islander roles. And the study analyzed the top 10 grossing films of each year from 2010 to 2019 and found that while less than a quarter of these Asian and Pacific Islander characters were comedic themselves, audience were asked to laugh at almost half of them. Asian people make up about 7% of the United States population and Pacific Islanders about 0.4%. But together, only 4.5% of leads or co-leads in the top 10 grossing domestic films from 2010 to 2019 are Asian or Pacific Islanders characters and then only 5.6 are supporting characters. In these films, 17% of female API characters are verbally objectified and 13% are visually objectified. And this is more common for API women than white women and other non-API women of color. Even in films that feature API characters in the main title cast, nearly three-fourths of them are in supporting roles. And they also found that films featuring API characters in the main title cast, about a third of them embody at least one API trope or stereotype, such as the martial artist or the model minority or the exotic one. And additionally, API characters are usually written as smart and hardworking, but not really sexy or funny. Asians in America face stereotypes of being quiet, submissive, nerdy, exotic, and foreign, among others. In contrast, Pacific Islanders, in addition to facing the higher levels of erasure overall, have stereotypes 
types of primitive, simple, lazy, unintelligent, and unambitious, among others. Now, these are obviously very inaccurate portrayals, but they do have very profound and definitely intense consequences, which is why this is not just a representational issue. It is also a racial and ethnicity issue. Stereotypical portrayals of API characters are seen again and again, and these have real-world impacts. Even the so-called positive stereotypes that Asian Americans are hardworking have problems. Now, this is obviously not the worst stereotype out there in the world, but this stereotype is said that they are hardworking, but they lack assertiveness and leadership savvy, which according to the Harvard Business Review, Asians Americans are the most likely to be hired, but the least likely to be promoted into management. Additionally, when there's a steady stream of stereotypes that demonize one group of people, it becomes psychologically easier to hurt them. Studies have shown that when people label Asians in America as being foreign, they're most likely to treat them with hostility and to engage in acts of violence and discrimination against them. Now, during this pandemic specifically, research has found that the hate crimes targeting the Asian American community has increased significantly. And according to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, anti-Asian hate crime has increased by 339% in 2021 compared to 2020. And when comparing 2020 to 2019, the amount of hate crimes increased by 124%. Now, going back to the film, even if one thinks of this as a period piece, these scenes still depict racism that do not have any other consequences. If there's only a humorous intent, scenes like this almost glorify the behavior. This is because you're not laughing at the scene because the man is making fun of someone else. You're either laughing at him at the expense of the Asian community, or you're not laughing at all because you feel the same level of uncomfort that I have. Now, honestly, even Anderson's defense of I have a Japanese stepmom, so it's something that I see, is somewhat of a bad defense. Now, in the past interview, he said, quote, my mother-in-law is Japanese and my father-in-law is white. So while seeing people speak English to her with a Japanese accent is something that happens all the time, end quote. Now, this is pretty much the same argument as the, quote, I'm not racist, I am black, or some of my friends are black, as an argument which is often used by many people to justify the claim that they're not racist toward people of color in general. Now, a 2004 basic and applied social psychology study had this phrase as, quote, a common claim of innocence by association, end quote. Then in 2011, a study published in the journal Black Studies suggested that the claim was likely to make African Americans think that the person making it was in fact more, not less prejudice toward them. And it essentially became this phrase that is used to be a quote, resistance to the anti-racist thinking, end quote. And this is the same essentially as saying that there's no such thing as sexism because we all have a close friend or family member who is a woman. There is also a possibility that a person of color might hold back on talking about race to you in fear of being dismissed like this. Instead, open your mind when race is being brought up, even if if it makes you feel uncomfortable. Frankly, if talking about it unsettles you, imagine experiencing it. Understand that people bringing these things up aren't them just being sensitive. It's an actual feeling that a lot of people deal with in this world. Maybe what you think of someone is different from who they actually are as a person and what they went through. Your experience in life is not going to be the same as your neighbor. So maybe listen to what they have to say. This is why this scene is so problematic because it simply continues a joke that has existed for many years. Outside of that, positives here are the film has some great acting and direction. Honestly, this film had only slightly more 
enjoyment than Belfast, and that's just because of the feel of it. It was just a more positive feeling film. And it showed two characters growing up in the 1970s. However, that's really it. The story was pretentious, long, boring, and really went nowhere. The films was seemingly made the same way that La La Land was, and that was a love letter to Los Angeles and the time when it wasn't in its heyday. The writing itself was quirky enough to be enjoyable, but if one does not really connect with the story, it can be immensely boring. Now, one can get past these fairly racist joke scenes and the rather strange choice to build a film around a technically criminal relationship that also, again, didn't see any consequences for or even opposition for it. The endless shots of people running if the story itself was good. Unfortunately, it was boring, tedious, and fairly uninspired for the two hours that I spent watching it, even though I felt like I was watching The Irishman twice in a row. Not an awfully made film, but at the end of the day, it's a simple coming of age story for two horrible people that aren't really worth rooting for, even though they're acted well. There was no message to succeed on, but the film does succeed with its direction, its details, and its ending. Three out of five. Let's get on to the last film. So Coda is a coming-of-age comedy drama film written and directed by Sian Hedder. Film stars Amelia Jones as the eponymous Coda, also standing for child of deaf adults, who is the only hearing member of a deaf family. Eugenio Derbez, Troy Kotzer, Ferdia Walsh-Pilo, Daniel Durant, and Marley Matlin are also in supporting roles. Now this was inspired by the 2014 film La Familia Bayer. Ruby again is this only hearing person in a deaf family. Her family have this small business as fishermen and she helps supports them, mainly translating everything to her family in sign language. As a result, she splits her life between her family and her dreams. And at the end of it, it is a film that is an incredible character story that's absolutely engaged. Amelia Jones as Ruby is absolutely amazing, and I can't wait to see her in more films. Looking into it, she studied the American Sign Language for nine months, had singing lessons, and then learned how to operate a fishing trawler. So the main thing here is how music has a big impact on this family. Because in general, they struggle to integrate themselves into their community because they cannot communicate with them. And for this reason, they live marginalized. And interestingly, music is what brings them closer to one another, even though three of them are not actually able to hear it. Ruby finds her path after joining this choir class and interacting with her singing teacher, Bernardo. Now initially, Ruby's afraid of singing in front of people because she doesn't believe in herself. She has always been there for her family and doesn't really know how to deal with something that her family cannot enjoy. And Bernardo here helps her find herself and her voice in the world and her place on a stage. And his character is not just one that's just there for inspiration. He doesn't only teach, he's a great character as well because he learns from Ruby. The events of the film show her trying to do everything which makes her late on occasion to their lessons. Now he thinks that she didn't respect his time but in reality she was just 
doing so much that she was overwhelmed that he didn't know about and he understands it. Ruby may be the main focus of the story, but the film also shows depth to her family as well. Along with the other fishermen, they don't earn how much they should because of the services to just sell their fish. Now, the authorities then want to install a monitor on each boat to collect data, which will then cost $800 a day, which is more than any of the fishermen get. Now, the father and son want to fight this system, but they obviously don't have the voice to do it. But this changes when Ruby translates their point of view to all their fishermen, inviting them to rebel against the authority and then just sell directly to the community. Now, what's really interesting about this film is that it's not about a person defying her parents wishes and going off to school and singing or doing something that really her parents don't want to do. Her parents want her to succeed but are just scared of life without her. Ruby is someone that they depend on to essentially survive and yes they have their other deaf friends but honestly they really only have this family and obviously the majority of the world is not deaf and doesn't know sign language. Outside of that, they're normal parents who just want what is best for their daughter. There's a scene where Ruby tells them about her ambitions and their main reaction is what if she isn't good? And that's just because they can't hear her, so they don't know. And then the other reaction is that they're afraid of their daughter leaving the nest. And both of these reactions are the same as any parent would think. At the end of the day, the Rossi family are normal. They just live their lives. And the love between all four of them is real. Ruby doesn't even stop doing her family duties when she starts singing. She tries to make her families better at their jobs and self-sufficient without. She starts to push them essentially out of their self-exclusion. They are scared of the other people, but then they start a business. They meet other people and they basically really start living their lives and this is all thanks to Ruby and then later there's a scene in the film that show Ruby interacting with her mother where her mother admires her daughter for her courage but she doesn't want to go only because she doesn't want to lose her but then she's reminded that loving someone is letting them free and they know that this this leaving the nest is something that will happen to Ruby because she can hear she is different from and they're a supportive and loving family even when the authorities remove the licenses from Frank and when Ruby goes to the audition. Everyone goes with them and supports them and then Ruby essentially to pay them back when at the audition does sign language to demonstrate the song lyrics and this scene specifically shows how Ruby grows. At her first concert she noticed how her family struggled with not being able to hear her or understand the lyrics of the song and it's in a moment that neither side had ever really experienced before. She's never been in a place where this would happen and didn't know how to respond to it. Her parents could see everyone's reaction around them, but they couldn't experience it themselves. Now the best moment in this film is when the music disappears in the middle of the duet being performed by Ruby and Miles. The audience is basically sitting with Frank and Jackie and feeling what they feel in this moment. And what was so interesting was that the song had me singing along, but then at the best moment, the director removes the music and leaves us deaf. It's such a powerful moment of silence, which is then turned around in the following scene. In that, we see Ruby sing to her father, with him feeling the vibrations of her body. And this shows him how beautiful her voice is and demonstrates his love for vibrations, which is why they'd say early on in the film that he likes rap and hip-hop music. Now. In this scene, Ruby knows how to tell them the lyrics of what she is singing. 
and honestly, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this again. No matter if they can hear each other or not, they know how to communicate with each other. Each moment that this family is on screen is absolutely genuine, sincere, and shows a very special bond that they have to one another. And Coda's meaning is twofold. One is the obvious acronym that means children of death adults, but secondly, also a musical meaning. And again, music is the focal point of the movie. It's what drives Ruby every day, but it's also the thing that drives her away from her family, symbolically, emotionally, and physically. And even the soundtrack ties into Ruby's feelings, such as with the Clash song, I Fought the Law. She uses this to wake up at 3 a.m. to work on the fishing boat, and her family's fishing business was founded on the basis of them challenging the authorities. And then the second one is You're All I Need to Get By by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. And this is the song that Ruby and Miles perform together on stage. And this song is one that not only demonstrates her feelings, not only for Miles, but also for her love for her father and just music as an all. And in music, a coda is Italian for tale, which is a passage that brings a piece to an end. This part in music is important because in a musical piece's climax, the idea of the piece is getting to its structural conclusion, and the coda is the way that the piece looks back on the main body of it, which gives the listeners a moment to take it all in and get the sense of balance. And this is precisely what this film does. It's not a film that is meant to show someone going against their family. It's one that takes everything that happens and realize that we are at the end of a chapter. Though not looking back with negativity, but rather in a positive light and knowing that going forward is the only way to move on. And this film is about passion, family, friendships. It teaches about integration and shows the difficulty that deaf people face every single day. Pieces of music are perfect. The film has a pace and rhythm similar to the songs that they're playing. The performances delivered by every single one of the actors is incredible and makes the movie more engaging. Now, no real technical thing makes this film absolutely amazing and a masterpiece, but that's a nitpick. It is damn good. The messages are solid and essential human lives and society, and it succeeds with that, the direction, acting, the details, and the ending. Honestly, nothing wrong with this film at all, and it could be thought as one of the best of this year. Five out of five. Now, what did you think of these films? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. The formal review is on Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram, and also YouTube. The handle's all the same. It's at the formal review. And for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis, I thank you very much for supporting me in that way. For anyone who wants to support, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash the formal review. Click support this podcast, and any donation is appreciated. Thank you all again for tuning in. And until next time, wash your hands. If you're able to, get vaccinated. And I'll see you at the movies. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Former Review. Cheers, and we'll see you next time. Character.